If you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. For this episode, we'll be looking at what the future of digital healthcare holds. We'll cover the role AI and chatbots will have in the future and are already having in some cases, some of the inherent challenges in innovating in the healthcare space, and how one leader at a Fortune 100 company in the healthcare space views the intersection of digital and healthcare. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Greg Fitzgerald the Staff Vice President of Digital Product Engineering at Centene. Greg is responsible for the strategic direction and development of the consumer technology products emerging from the Digital Product Engineering team at Centene. His career has included leadership positions in a number of successful healthcare startups, including running engineering teams for Live Healthier, a digital wellness company acquired by Centene, and Health Central, a social community of patients and experts acquired by Remedy Health Media. Greg actively pursues emerging technical trends such as smart home, IoT, and machine learning techniques in between watching the Washington Capitals on their quest for their second consecutive Stanley Cup. Welcome to the podcast and to the studio, Greg. Thanks for having me, Will. Absolutely. Let's start the episode off giving listeners some insight into your background and role at Centene beyond what I mentioned in the introduction. I know you're all of a month and change into your new role but can you share what you're doing now and what your role was previously in the innovation lab at Centene? Yeah, sure thing. So I think I'll actually go in uh, chronological order. Sure. A little bit easier to tell the story, I suppose. (laughs) So um, the innovation lab, the Involve Innovation Lab at Centene was founded back in late 2015, early 2016. And our goal was really around changing the way our members at Centene think about, feel about, and interact with their healthcare. Uh, So we had a kind of a three to five year time horizon where we were looking at emerging technology trends and and investigating how we might apply those technology trends to really make a difference for our members. Um, We were looking at things uh, such as AR, VR, um, finance, Bitcoin, things like that, um, and really ended up focusing in on natural language understanding as a real area of opportunity for the member. Natural language understanding, um, NLU, as, as we'll probably continue to refer to it, seems like a really great fit for an innovation lab project. It is, if you think about healthcare, talking about healthcare is hard, right? Mm-hmm. People use words like deductible and coinsurance and Things that even people in the industry sometimes don't know what they mean, but no members, no use and users ever talk that way, right? And they wanna they wanna use their own language. And so, was there an opportunity for natural language understanding to make that process simpler and easier for our members? Mm-hmm. Reminds me a little bit of the I think it's like an Allstate commercial where they're walking through the jungle and, and a guy is saying, "Yeah." That's right. I think he's speaking insurance. That's that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Now, we don't all have to wear ties and look like that uh, on the insurance side of the desk, but it's very much the same problem. Yeah. So, you know, so we uh, spent a solid 18 months exploring natural language understanding and actually worked through an initial prototype of a, a conversational agent that we called Evie. And Evie was a virtual triage nurse. Um, and what we were tra- aiming to, to understand was, could we put together um, an application, uh, uh, an agent that could mimic or support what our 24-7 nurse line does at Centene? So if 
You flip over the back of your health insurance card. There's an 800 number on the back that you can call and get immediate um, dispositioning information from a, a, a nurse. And that's, as you imagine, a very time-consuming and labor-intensive process to staff a, a phone center of nurses. Could we build something that could take in um, symptom and risk factor information, run that through an algorithm, and produce a, a, a dispositioning as good as or better than uh, what our nurses did? Um, and so that was really our our ex- initial exploratory effort into NLU. Um, we were able to bring that to a very strong prototype um, that that definitely seemed like it had a lot of potential, and then wanted to end up uh, pivoting that into a different area of conversation, a little technology that we'll talk about a little bit later in Amber. Mm-hmm. Okay. And maybe I should have led with this, but for listeners who aren't familiar with Centene, what would be your your short version of of what Centene does? I know it's a there's a vast scope. It's a huge company, but but who is Centene? Yeah, sure. So um, Centene is is a Fortune 100 company, provider of government sponsored health insurances, um, and so that means we have lines of business um, around Medicare, Medicaid, um, and our Affordable Care Act exchange business as well. And let's talk about your background and work a little more. AI is a special area of interest for you. You co-authored a white paper on conversational AI in healthcare along with Amy Troop. Can you share a little bit of insight into what your R&D found? Yeah, sure. And, you know, AI is one of those overloaded terms right now, yeah. right? And so, uh, again, very, you know, there is a lot of AI emerging in the healthcare space right now. Image recognition for classification of cancerous tumors, things like that. Where we really, again, wanted to focus was on um, AI, as you might uh, think about it with regards to a- uh, Amazon Alexa uh, or the Google Assistant, Home Assistant. Mm-hmm. And could we build an AI agent or conversational agent that would um, that and how would members respond to an, an agent like that? So really, our, our, we had a couple of main goals that we wanted to, to understand as we went through our R&D or our pilot phase. And, and the, the first and foremost was, do people want to even interact with something like this in a healthcare space, right? It's one thing to ask Alexa to turn on your lights. It's another thing to ask Alexa to book a doctor's appointment for you or, or you know, hey, what's this thing on my foot, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so, so that's what, that was the kind of the first and foremost goal. And, and very much so the answer was yes to that. People are very interested in interacting with this type of experience in the healthcare space. The next question was was around what uh, what types of things. Once we understand that they do want to interact uh, with a conversational agent, what types of things are they interested in asking about? And so we did actually see a lot of queries. Right? Um, how do I, you know, have very even task related things like how do I add a dependent to my plan, um, all the way to more complex questions like um, is my prescription for Zelljans covered by my insurance? But really, kind of very query related. And then finally, can a conversational experience actually communicate information better than a traditional experience, a traditional web experience or, or a, a paper packet that we might send them in the mail? And, you know, again, I think the answer turned out to be yes to an extent. And so one of the learnings that we took away was conversational, uh, conversational experience is really good for communicating information. But as soon as you get to anything more complex um, or maybe things that require complex data collection, you actually need to drop down into a mixed user interaction. So something that has more traditional non-conversational aspects to it. Okay. And your foray into AI wasn't just a lork or a side project. It resulted in the creation of a cross-domain chat platform called Colloquium. 
What is colloquium and how is it used? Yeah, so colloquium is the next manifestation of the work we did during the the pilot phase of our our work. And so colloquium is a platform um, at Centene that serves as the foundation for all of our uh, building of conversational experiences. It is a HIPAA-compliant natural language framework that allows us to train uh, domain-specific models uh, within the healthcare space. So we have one for answering questions about insurance. We have one for answering questions, doing triaging and diagnosis. We have all different sorts of uh, natural language models and also a framework and administrative system for authoring the responses to the queries that come in via NLU. So one of the things that we've really focused on um, at Centene and, and with this product is how do we make sure that we have that we have the ability to understand what the user is saying, but also the ability to make sure we're providing the correct answer. Something maybe we'll talk about a little bit later is the high cost of being wrong in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we've really focused on making sure that we can, we have transparency and accountability built into all of the responses that the agent might give. Um, and that's part of what the colloquium platform allows us to do. The other aspect is um, while natural language services uh, provided by AWS or Google Home have started to come to fruition um, and are available for developers to use in many domains. There is not currently any healthcare-specific domain, uh, healthcare-specific service that understands, you know, conditions, risk factors, symptoms, things like that. And so we've built up uh, in partnership with that 24-7 nurse line that I mentioned earlier, an ontology of how people refer to their, their symptoms. And that's very different from how a member refers to it than how, for instance, a a doctor refers to it than how an insurance provider refers to it. So what are some of the benefits Colloquium enables for consumers and conversely for Centene? Yeah. So I think the first thing for the consumer, um, and and I'll continue to refer to them as a member as well, is the simplification of the user experience, right? So members get to express their issue or the thing they need in their terms. They don't have to do some sort of mental gymnastics to translate that into the terms that the insurance company expects or the terms that their doctors expect. That then leads to another ability to kind of give a conversational interface to what is has traditionally been a, a set of really disjointed experiences. So uh, I'm sure if you've been on your own health uh, insurance portal lately or your doctor's portal, probably not the most usable thing in the world. And so part of the reason for that is because we in the industry have assembled vendor-provided solutions and just link people off to these various solutions, right? And so when you think about chat or conversational, it's a new interface for thinking about how to expose those systems to members. And so you really have to think about what is the kind of minimum amount of information that I can provide to this member to answer their question at this point in time? And how do I get it from the right source system and make it available to them in the in the same format that they requested it in conversationally? Yeah. It probably means that you don't have to go to WebMD and say, I have a bump on my knee and the return is, you probably have cancer and you're going to die. <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the old joke. It may still end up saying that, you know, but... Um, <laughs> 
But yeah, exactly, right? And so for from Centene, it, it, it's very much um, the colloquium platform provides a way to rapidly train and design new and deploy new agents for various healthcare domains. So our, you know, I, I mentioned EV, which was our virtual triage agent. Um, we've since uh, created Amber, who is our um, healthcare navigator agent. And that's all trained and built on the same platform and requires much less developer and product time to get something up and running and out the door. And when people are interacting with with Amber or Colloquium, it's through the Centene website. How how do they access it? Yeah, great question. So it's actually through, uh, it can be through a variety of modalities. So first and foremost, we found that we needed to build uh, a custom application to get the mix of user experience interaction correct, right? So it is driven by natural language, but we're able to drop into rich UI components when we need to. Uh, an example of that would be, you know, it's, it's the member can come in and say, hey, how much is my premium? Or I want to pay my bill or I want to do, um, I want to make a payment. All of those would resolve down to something which would allow them to pay their bill. As you might imagine, trying to enter your credit card information conversationally is not the best way to do it, right? It's not the, the the best way to capture it. It's not the best way to give validation feedback back. And so uh, the application that we've built allows us to toggle between that natural language processing and the kind of conversational, I'm sorry, the non-conversational credit card form that you might want to capture the information through. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Amber earlier. Apple has Siri, Microsoft has Cortana, Amazon has Alexa, and you have Amber. So there's some very impressive results that Amber has helped drive that are mentioned in the white paper that I mentioned in the intro. Can you share what some of those are with listeners? Yeah. So um, so Amber is our uh, healthcare navigator, and and really she had two two main aspects to her this year. And so first, she she supports our members through the onboarding process, and and. If you can imagine going on healthcare.gov, signing up for your insurance plan, being asked to um, put in all your information, and then you generally wait two weeks until you get a a packet in the mail that says, welcome, you're a new member. And this is for most plans across the, the, the industry. Amber was able to be put into that pipeline such that as soon as the member had signed up for um, their insurance, their Ambetter insurance, Amber would um, based, they'd immediately get an email from Amber, uh, from Amber saying, hey, I'm Amber, your healthcare navigator. Uh, let me walk you through the five critical steps of activating your insurance, right? And so those are things like um, understanding wh- what plan you bought, right, and how to use it. And they are things like selecting a PCP. And, and very critically, they are making your first payment because without your making your first payment, your insurance never gets activated. Members go to use it in the January, February, March timeframe and find that it's not turned on, right? Mm-hmm. So what we saw from a results standpoint was um, an 18% improvement in binder payment rates. So that initial payment, which is is very significant. That means 18% more people are going to be able to use their insurance in when they first go to in the new year than had Amber not been present. We saw a 40% increase in PCP selection rates as compared to non-Amber users. And when we did some qualitative surveying of our members, for, of our Amber, Amber members versus non-Amber members, we saw uh, significant increases, uh, almost a full point on a five-point Likert scale on topics like, I understand the basics of how my coverage works, right? So when we talk about 
earlier, you know, how can uh, a conversational agent be used to communicate information in a way that can be easily intake uh, understood? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the data point that says, yes, it can be done, right? Yeah. And then, you know, finally, we saw a 20% increase in respondents' be- likelihood to be satisfied with their choice of Ambetter, right? So when you think about getting the relationship off to a good start, um, we're seeing all the, the numbers that we would want to see there. And, you know, I, I always like to add in a, a verbatim here because uh, it's, you know, when when things are blowing up or the, the application isn't working as expected, it's the kind of thing that gets you through the long hours in the night. But, you know, somebody actually wrote in to say, Amber blew my mind simply because I never imagined a health insurance company would have something so technologically interactive, right? So people are really interested in being engaged this way um, and excited about it. Yeah. And you alluded to this earlier with the high cost of being wrong in healthcare, and you cover this in the white paper a little bit. What are some of the things that make innovation in the healthcare space such a delicate dance? Yeah, uh, and there's really three categories. Um, so the first is HIPAA compliance. And you know, HIPAA compliance, for anybody in the healthcare space, HIPAA compliance is, is no stranger, right? The, the real challenge that it presents in this space is that the boon in in natural language has been service offerings from the major players like Amazon and Google and others. And so the challenge there is that even today, and certainly back in 2016, when we started out out on this trek, none of the natural language services by those um, providers are are HIPAA compliant. So there is no mechanism to use um, Alexa right now to do HIPAA compliant uh, skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you end up needing to roll your own for those services. And there are plenty of open source tools and some of which we used, but that's much costlier than um, than being able to use this out-of-the-box service that's going to do 90% of what you want it to do. So the second thing is is healthcare, and we talked about this a little bit too, but Healthcare language is hard, right? Doctors talk to their insurance to the insurance company in in codes that are called ICD, right? These are diagnosis codes. Oh, I'm sorry. Doctors talk to members that way. Doctors talk to their insurance company uh, using CPT codes, right? These are the codes they get they, they use to bill. And members don't talk any of those codes, right? Member members. So, like the example I like to use is, you know, a provider might file a CPT code 11400 for an excision of a benign legion, including margins, except skin tags, unless listed elsewhere, trunk, arms, or legs, excise diameter, 0.5 centimeters or less, right? That's uh, yeah, literally, right? You got that, right? You had that the other day? <laughs> so um, that's literally the thing that gets written down and it shows up on your, you know, your explanation of benefits when it comes back from your insurance provider, right? What a member is thinking is, you know, I got a small root mole removed from my arm and thankfully it wasn't cancerous, right? And so that that disconnect between how all these people talk to each other and then, you know, if you take that down another level, how all the backend systems talk to each other is really, really challenging. And so that's where we had to work, you know, mining our data and working with our nurse um, team to really start to create a, a lexicon, an ontology of colloquial terms for um, common medical procedures and, and symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, and you mentioned this, the high cost of being wrong, right? So, the the answer to the question is gender reassignment surgery covered, right? Which is actually a question we got during our pilot with Amber. Answering that question incorrectly is going to cost somebody thousands and thousands of dollars, right? And so it's hard for us to say maybe in that case or provide a probabilistic answer. And it's really important for us to know that if we tell the, the member yes to that question or anything like it, that we are 
as confident in, as we can be in in the result, right? And I think that's what differentiates it a little from from domains where maybe being correct sixty percent of the time is okay, right? Yeah. Um, it it really isn't in this space. Yeah. So I know you're no longer officially with the Innovation Lab, but since we're on the Innovation Engine here, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the mechanics of how things worked there, because your process sounds interesting and it dovetails with how our product teams at Three Pillar work and the product mindset that we regularly espouse. So in in the white paper, the way the labs work is described as this. Based in the Washington, D.C. area tech corridor, the lab is given explicit freedom to fail fast. The interdisciplinary team develops rapid prototypes to test the technical feasibility of a given solution while assessing its consumer and market viability. Concepts that successfully pass the feasibility gate are then incubated and top performers are productionalized. So let me ask you about a few pieces of that. How does explicit freedom to fail fast work and how do you measure that? It, it kind of all goes into that stage gate part of the quote. And so when we were innovating or, or ideating on a, on a problem domain, really we'd have four stage gates for ourselves um, of increasing timeframes. So the first was just a rapid conceptualization phase, right? And we usually tried to limit this to one or two weeks. Um, this is very much an internal exercise um, mm-hmm. that... Uh, we would use to generate. Uh, Amazon has a has a, a product development process where they generate press releases for the products that they're pitching. You know, and and what would this look like if we were announcing its release today, right? And so we go through a process and we generate those types that type of press release, and we then evaluate it internally and just give it a a, a go no go, right? Is this at all interesting for us to pursue? Do we think there's the possibility of a, a product market fit, right? So coming out of that, we, we want to bring it into the product market viability stage. And so here we would go out, you know, onto the street or online or whatever, whatever made the right, uh, made sense for that product and assess, uh, do user interviews and assess whether th- there's any product market there, mm-hmm. right? Um, are we actually, have we actually defined a problem that members or users feel like they're facing? Um, and that would also then inform the future iterations of the product. And during this phase as well, we're also making sure that there's a business case to be had, right? Are there possible sources of revenue? Are there possible sources of margin improvement that would support the continued development of this product? The third gate, assuming we had passed that, is technical feasibility. And so this is really a four to six week, let's build the the, the most the highest fidelity prototype of this thing that we can, right? Mm-hmm. Is it even going to be possible to do this, right? And assuming all of those gates pass, the last is, and we learned this a little bit late in the game, to be honest with you, who is our business sponsor, right? Because... It's one. It's great to bring something to prototype, right? Bringing it to a production application requires somebody in the business to say, "Yes, I want that. Yes, I'm willing to fund it, and yes, I'm willing to support it in the long term." And so, if any one of those stages fails, you know, we we discard the idea, put it on the shelf. Maybe we'll return to it event, eventually, but and start the cycle over again for another round of products. Yeah, and and I think you answered some of this in your in your last answer. But when you were building rapid prototypes, how were you going about soliciting feedback that would validate or invalidate the ideas that you were testing? Yeah, it, it, so I did touch on some of that, you know. But as an example, um, this is outside the realm of conversational um, experience. But we 
Uh, one of the other areas we were focused on was the social determinants of health. Um, and this is an, uh, an area of health where it's not your doctor and it's not your diagnosis. It's um, your access to housing or your access to healthy food, um, things that contribute to your overall health, but aren't medical in nature. And so we were actually going through uh, and trying to ideate on on a product that might help solve um, uh, food deserts in Ward 7 and 8 down in D.C. And uh, our team, our user experience team, would drive down there three times a week, stand outside the one grocery store in Ward 7 and the one grocery store in Ward 8, um, and interview people as they came in and out of the building, right? And, and understand um, if the problems that we thought were the problems were actually the problems. And, and as probably is no surprise to you, being a veteran product person, very frequently the problems we thought were the problems were not the problems. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to just ask a few personal questions because I'm interested in, in, uh, in a few things that were in your bio. So one of your, um, one of your interests is smart home. What is the smart home of Greg Fitzgerald like? So I have a uh, smart things uh, from Samsung, although it was pre, I bought it before it was Samsung. So, uh, but now it's Samsung. So uh, all the rooms are wired with, with lights. Everything's controlled through Alexa, door locks, all of that. Now I'm probably inviting people to come uh, <laughs> steal from my home. Um, I think the most gratuitous use of it was uh, when my three-year-old uh, was learning, it was potty training. Uh, he was afraid to go into the bathroom by himself without the light on. Um, and so he'd say, I need to go to the bathroom, run in, and he couldn't reach the light to turn it on. Um, and so, of course, my solution to this problem was to take out the light switch and put in a smart home light switch so that he could instead yell, Alexa, turn on the bathroom light and then run to the bathroom. <laughs> and only later did somebody ask me, why didn't I just buy a stool for him to stand on and turn the light on? Way less cool. I, you know, and I just, it never occurred to me, right? I don't know. <laughs> Okay, and and you're also a big Washington Capitals fan. Uh, today is January twenty third, two thousand nineteen. The Capitals are on a six game skid. What is going on? Yeah, well, well, first the the important thing to say is it's the Stanley Cup champion Capitals. Uh, yeah, so, I left that part um, out as a Hurricanes fan. As the uh, as the, the if they continue a losing streak as it goes on, it makes it much easier to say defending Stanley <laughs> Cup champion Washington Capitals. Uh, I, I don't know. I think they'll be fine in the long run. You know, I think they've got plenty of talent returning a lot of the players from last year on this team. Uh, the all-star break coming up uh, after tonight will certainly help. And hopefully Opportune they time can, for that. Uh, hopefully they can, they can get themselves right with a little bit of vacation and come back and, and barnstorm the second half of the season. Yeah, I hope he's been out for a while too, right? Yeah, he had a little bit of an eye injury, and uh, but he, he's been back the last couple games. I think they've given up 22 goals over the last three games, though. So maybe he's not quite 100%. We'll see. Okay, nice. Well, an opportune time for the All-Star break. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to join us in the studio today to talk about the future of digital health. Congratulations on the new position. Best of luck with it. And uh, look forward to uh, look forward to, to seeing where Amber and Colloquium take all the Centene members out there. If you'd like to learn more about Greg Fitzgerald, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. You can find out more about Centene at centene.com and you can follow them on Twitter at, at Centene. Uh, anywhere else, folks should should look for you or your work. The white paper that we covered in depth today is uh, linked on your LinkedIn profile. Anywhere else you would direct, folks? Uh, nope, those are the right places. Okay, nice. All right, well, Greg, thanks again. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www 
www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at threepillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the innovation engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.